Hey everyone, back again. Today I'm going to start my two-part episode series on Franz Fanon's The Wretched of the Earth. Now before jumping into it, hi, I'm David. I explain philosophical themes and ideas to help you along your philosophical journey. So if you're new here, you can go see my 300 episodes I already have up. You can subscribe and see episodes I release every single week, sometimes twice a week. If you found this in podcast form, you're going to be able to find it on YouTube where sometimes there's, there are videos. Or if you found this on YouTube, you're going to be able to find it in podcast form, pretty much anywhere where you get podcasts, if you just prefer the audio. If you want to follow me anywhere other than here, you can find me on Instagram at theory underscore and underscore philosophy or on Twitter at David Guineo. You can help me out by doing all those things, liking, sharing, subscribing. You can help me out monetarily via Patreon or PayPal, but obviously no pressure. And yeah, let's jump into Fennel's The Wretched of the Earth, which is after reading Black Skin, White Mask, is a very different text in that that text was much more systematic. Uh, and I don't mean this in any, I'm not imparting any judgment on this, it's just a different style. In this text, what we are presented with is very much Fanon's putting into practice many of the issues that he found and he raised in Black Skin, White Masks. So with that being said, I'm going to try and do this text the justice that it deserves, but it is so enigmatic. It is full of so much mystery that there's always something that's going to be lost. So I really recommend you go and read it. But in any case, it starts with chapter one titled Concerning Violence. Now, no matter how we talk about decolonization for Fanon, it is a project to restore nations and to restore national consciousness. Now, the term restore here is a little bit ambiguous. So restoring doesn't necessarily imply that there is a returning to what has been lost, but a return instead to an idea of a sovereign people organizing themselves for their own, according to their own will. Now, because this is a nationalist project, Fanon suggests that it is a violent undertaking. Decolonization cannot be conducted in... A benevolent way. It cannot be conducted without violence. And that is quite simply because it means replacing one species of people with another. And this is a fact that haunts the colonizers, because this is very much what colonizers had done. They sought to replace a people or peoples all across the world with another people. So they, or I'm already, I'm already imparting a certain uh, judgment here, they didn't view most of the indigenous populations that they encountered as being people. And so what they did was they imparted, they bestowed upon everybody across the world an idea of what it meant to be human. So in that way, colonization is this very act that Fanon is describing uh, in accordance with decolonization. That is, it is the replacing of one species of people with another. Now, insofar as this, the project of decolonialism or decolonization mirrors, resembles colonization, what we're going to see throughout the course of this, this text is that decolonization cannot, in fact, replicate the values and ideals of Europe and of the Arabic world that has, uh, that itself has a long history of colonization. I mean, many countries in Africa speak Arabic. This didn't just happen because um, God just made people speak Arabic. This happened through years of conquest. It's important not to forget that. 
even though the Europe's level of colonization has never been paralleled. It's just without, it's, it's in a league of its own. Now, in this discourse of replacing one species with another, how Fanoa imagines decolonization is a process by which to create new humans, in his language, or at least in the English translation, to create new men, to change the Eurocentric notion of the human, to allow for a certain mutation to occur, for possibility to happen. Decolonization is then a seismic series of events that trouble the foundations of our world because it completely unsettles what it means to know ourselves, what it means to know relationships with other people, what it means to know about government, about knowledge. It completely uproots these ideals and replaces them with something new that would ideally be for the betterment of the entire world. Now, with this being said, this isn't about creating one new ideal that will replace the old one. Fanon is clear that because this is a national project, what he's really fighting for, or what he thinks decolonization is really fighting for, is to try and make it so that each nation, each group of people, has their own sovereign will to decide how they want, you know, how they want to be organized, how they want to live in the world, engage in their relations with one another, and so on. Now, within colonial situations, within under-colonization, there are different strategies that are used to separate those who are exploited from those who are in power. So, for example, in capitalist countries, Fanon says that moral teachers, counselors, and bewilderers do this task that separate the exploited from the exploiter. Whereas in colonial countries that haven't really entered into capitalist uh, economies quite yet, what we see instead are overt institutions of control, like the police, like the army, to try to fulfill these duties, to separate the lower classes from the upper classes, the exploited from the exploiter. Now, this is all very important, I think, when we try to understand or try to apply the work of other thinkers of power to these dynamics. So for example, Foucault writes about the panopticon as producing homogenous effects of power. Now we don't really see that playing out. In fact, we actually see in colonial settings, we see the maintenance of still very strict forms of control that resemble something of a society of the spectacle or the spectacle of the scaffold, I should say, where there's these overt forms of violence that are conducted to control populations. And these effects that they produce are by no means homogenous as he suggests that the panopticon operates. So this is not to criticize Foucault in this instance, but to suggest to, you know, encourage us to be wary of simply applying other ideas of power to understanding those kinds of arrangements within colonial paradigms. Now the same can be applied against Marxism. So over the course of this text, we're going to see that Fanon is very much indebted to Marxist thought, very much, uh, he sees it as being extremely important to understanding what is going on here. But at the same time, because Marxism doesn't fully account, at least at the time, certainly not, doesn't account for the way that race affects people's relations to one another, affects a colonial paradigm, any discourse that tries to homogenize the people under the banner of workers, 
against capitalists ignores the extent to which that race plays a part here. So, for example, in colonial countries, in colonial settings, white foreigners, foreigners, uh, colonizers, live luxurious lives compared to colonized people. And this is why, really, that Marxism is limited, because the whiteness of these people plays a significant part in their status. That is, it's not just because they have wealth, that they're, they uh, command capital, that they procure capital. It is their whiteness that plays a very important part in their being elevated uh, in that setting, socially elevated there. And of course, it's important to mention as well that even in Marx, we see these strange apologetic remarks for colonialism to say or where Marx says that colonialism is a necessary evil, evil to liberate people across the world from their archaic traditions, from their archaic ways of living in the world, and to open them up to the future, to open them up to the capitalist economy that will eventually mutate into communism. So here we just see that certainly within the history of Marxism, there has been this depreciation of non-European people, this view that non-European people and people who have not submitted to the capitalist way of life are somehow backwards, are somehow less developed than people in Europe or capitalist colonies and capitalist countries. Now, colonization obviously has effects on the people in these settings. Of course, there are the immediate effects of just the violence inflicted, real physical bodily harm that is inflicted. And by real, I just meant like you, could, you can see it imparted upon the skin. But there is also the psychological effects. Now, one of the really strong points in my mind of black skin, white masks is that it is the duty of the psychoanalyst and the psychiatrist to deal with the problems produced by colonization, the psychological harms produced by it, but also to combat colonialism so that these harms are not inflicted again. So it's not just about getting rich because you can capitalize on the fact that people are emotionally, psychologically traumatized, but to also combat the structures that produce these traumas. And so people become psychologically sick under colonization, which is makes total sense. I mean, wouldn't, wouldn't anyone really? So colonized people are told that they are underdeveloped, that they are primitive, that they are uneducated. And obviously this is going to have serious effects on people. But these efforts by European colonizers to try to control colonized peoples and to infantilize and reduce their abilities, in some sense or in some capacity works against Europe and colonizers because the colonizers also spread certain other ideas, including all people being equal about individual autonomy, right, to choose and think. And so there were many instances in which colonized people would take those messages that they were being taught. So they were being taught that their ways of life are stupid and they have to adopt instead these European values. But these European values actually provided justification to oppose colonization. Because if suddenly people had the, the European rhetoric, that is the rhetoric of the colonizer, the language of the colonizer, they could then turn that rhetoric back against the colonizer. And this can be done to reclaim lost values, to reclaim lost 
traditions. Now, this wasn't always successful, and it was at times certainly met with resistance. But in any case, it demonstrates the absurdity of Europe's, Europe's claim to epistemic superiority. That is to say, its claim of being more knowledgeable than any other part of the world. So decolonization in opposition to colonial rule will seek to unify people on a national, and he says sometimes a racial, basis. Colonizers are particularly sensitive, though, to any examples of subordination or insubordination, so they will try to crush any revolutionary spirit among colonized people to defang them for all of the anger that they have. And one of the ways that they do this is to appeal to the colonized people who are, who are among the intellectual class, who are people who have probably gone through universities, either in their home country or their home region, uh, or have gone through colonial universities. And these people will largely be manipulable by colonizers because they will be able to speak to the people the value and the virtue of European culture. And one particular idea that they use to convince the people uh, and to try to render them uh, incapable of opposing colonial rule is the idea of individualism and the European brand of individualism that atomizes people, that separates people from one another, that disrupts community living in favor of individualized, detached ways of living. Now, if you are an individual living almost totally in isolation, it's going to be very hard, or at least there are going to be certain barriers that are brought up in front of you to actually form solidarity and to, um, to form group conflict against colonial rule. But when decolonization begins uh, for Fanel, then the intellectuals will see really how absurd all of this rhetoric about individualism really is because it will emerge from communities largely in the country, as we'll come to show throughout the course of this book, probably in the second part, we're going to get more into that. Uh, but in any case, we're going to show uh, the extent to which that it is community action that begins, that lights the fire of colonial revolt, or the revolt of colonized people against the colonizers. And I should have said, this episode is going to go up to chapter three. And then the next part is going to take over from chapter three till the end. So one of the other things that the colonized are going to use against the colonizer is the rhetoric of us versus them, which very much inhabits Euro the European imagination. The idea that everyone outside of Europe is an enemy and or is in need of uh, to, to be Christianized, to be uh, brought into the spectral light of European knowledge. And so... The colonizers or the colonized will use this rhetoric against them to show the extent to which that Europe, that the colonizers are the enemy. And there's a very interesting moment here when Fanon thinks about the types of myths that he was privy to in Mountainique and other in other countries uh, in Africa. Mountainique is not in Africa, but other uh, other countries that have some kind of strategic allyship with one another against European colonization. And he muses upon the place of superstition, which wouldn't be called superstition. And the term superstition is a very charged term, but maybe a term like myth would be better. Myth in these settings 
and the types of horrors that these myths would invoke in people where they would have tales about the dangers that are that are present in the forest at night of ghosts and goblins and vampires and zombies that would threaten them around every corner and he uses this to say that the colonize we that him and his uh, fellow Mar martinicians 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 are not scared of the colonizer they are scared of these monsters that haunt them in their dreams and so to them the colonizer because the colonizer is corporeal you know they are they can bleed whereas zombies and vampires can't they are less scary than these creatures and i just thought that this was an interesting point because what this demonstrates is a bravery that i think is often erased and so when the colonizer comes and says that oh all of your myths are silly we have this thing called christianity <laughs> which you know is not a myth apparently but we have this thing called christianity that's going to fix all that uh and then all of a sudden what you have are an extremely brave group of people who have been used to fighting monsters and now are confronted with human monsters which are infinitely less scary than the other kinds of monsters that creep in the woods but of course there have been relatively there have been very few revolts very few efforts to oppose in physical uh, altercations to oppose the colonizers now there are there are many examples of this having happened i just mean like on total it's a very small portion of these people because colonial power has been very strong and very successful at crushing insubordination and one of the other ways that this is done is like through marxism that claims to represent the people which includes people who are colonized but it convinces people not to see the true evils of the world like white supremacy and european colonialism as being bad which i already mentioned briefly and this is something that i see you know i see all the time now where marxists love this type of uh, this idea that like race gender don't matter what matters is economic exploitation to which my my brain can't comprehend it in that i don't see how then uh, resolving the issue of economic exploitation is going to bring an end to racism communism will be rife with racism and sexism unless these things are addressed as well and in fact they predate capitalism uh, but in any case i'm just putting i mean <laughs> could i be any clearer on my position uh toward marxism probably not but anyways i digress so intellectuals and bourgeois will as well convince people that violence is never the answer and so colonizers or colonized people will adopt this viewpoint to think that oh it has to be peaceful revolt and Fanon is obviously not satisfied with this because this is just a way to instill in the minds of the people that through reform through partnership with colonizers somehow colonization can come to an end whereas right off the bat in this text Fanon was saying that no it is a violent struggle and of course like i said earlier there are instances where this has occurred and certain strategies that have been employed or more like tactics employed by colonized people including guerrilla warfare to oppose 
much stronger forces. Because if you have a knowledge of your territory, if you know how to navigate swamps and rivers and jungles, and the colonizer does not, you are going to have a tactical advantage over them that you are going to be able to use to oppose them. And we're going to talk about guerrilla warfare more as we go on, but for now, it's really important to also consider the way that violence is, a, is an ambiguous term. So you have the bourgeois, you have the intellectuals telling the colonized people not to be violent, which, yeah, sure, nonviolence is a preferable way to do this until it is not working. And so what we see then is exploitation occurring not at the level of violence per se, physical violence, but there's exploitation, there is an erasure of identity that is occurring all the time against colonized people, where you have finance capitalism that is just steadily sucking these countries dry of their resources, of any wealth that they have, for the benefit of colonial regimes. Now, the bourgeois and intellectuals say that, look, this isn't violence, so you can't oppose it with violence. So, and, you know, it's, it's like, well, what, what are people supposed to do then? Because any other kind of reform is not going to be taken seriously. And even if it is taken seriously, is it actually going to address these issues? Now, I want to make clear that despite my criticism of Marxism, we're going to see throughout the course of this text that Fanel really sees a lot of value to what Marx tells us and uh, what we can take what we can take from it. So decolonization or causes for the breakdown of colonial structures occur largely through two different means. Either there is a violent struggle of the people in their own in their own right, or there's action on the part of surrounding colonized people. So in either case, it's colonized people that are opposing directly opposing colonial rule, uh, whether or not uh, which, which must assume a violent form. So as an example, we know of the Dien Bien, Phu, Dien Bien Phu people in Vietnam, who uh, they, were, they were a strategic oppositional force to French colonialism in the early 50s, I think 1950s, 1953, 1954, I think. And they were very successful at pushing back French forces, I think to the point that the French pulled out of Vietnam. Similarly to what was seen during the Vietnam War, where the United States pulled out, because we know that the Vietnam War was just a proxy war, was just a way to fight communism through a kind of neo-imperial imposition of capitalist values onto the Vietnamese people that failed drastically, of course. Now, these kinds of resistances that, you know, history is rife with these kinds of resistances and people are largely forced to assume these violent forms of resistance... These resistances are met with disdain by people in colon colonial countries from the mother countries of colonization. They're met with disdain. They're, they're used to justify further colonialism to say that, oh, these people are so, uh, so primitive that they need to be further controlled and further managed so that this violence does not repeat anymore. And they drop rhetoric like, or they use rhetoric like, uh, they are not being objective in their values. They are uh, a people who are regressing in what they're doing, which is just a very strategic way of appealing to some kind of higher authority, in this case, perhaps objectivity that just floats above everybody 
and is used to justify further control of colonized people. Now, I mentioned at the outset that this text is extremely complicated, and that has been the case up till this point. And I'm doing my best to just really give you the meat and potatoes here. But some of the difficulties really arise in my mind when Fanon considers the other barriers to the formation of national consciousness. He suggests that one of the other barriers beyond European colonizers are tribal structures in the countryside and in, I guess, even in towns that the colonizers intensified. So when colonizers arrived and would arrive into different countries, different regions of the world, they would look at those people and take whatever kind of structure they had and intensify that structure. And the reason they did this is because European life, all the major European colonizers, be it Spain, France, England, they were all extremely hierarchical. And so what they did was view the world through that hierarchical lens, and they would see in some countries, some regions, that there would be perhaps elders, there would be doctors, there would be educators, and the colonizers would give them all of the, any kind of wealth that they would have to try to make sense of that region, of that culture, and to create allyships with these people. Now, what happened here was that it would leave regular everyday people kind of behind, would suggest that they were to be spoken for. So when decolonization might come into fruition or the fire for decolonization starts to get lit, there might be, in some cases, there is resistance to it by these upper tier people. And I'm just using language in the way that I might possibly understand it as though I, which I can't understand because I don't know whatever setting we're talking about. I didn't grow up there. I don't know what it is like, but people who had formed allies with colonizers would at times actually oppose decolonial efforts because of their strategic allyship with the colonizer which didn't happen everywhere all the time. Fanon is just pointing that this is a possibility. So the project of decolonization shouldn't be to just try to create another Europe in another part of the world or to create more European countries. And that is because the national movements that occurred in Europe came about very differently because they came about largely through exploitation of other parts of the world. So nationalism very much coincides with new forms of travel and communication and capitalism that sought to extract as many resources, as much wealth, as much labor power, as much capital from all across the world. And with this, Europe developed a lot of wealth. And so they could form these national structures based on this wealth, based off of very exploitative industries. And they, you know, they could be fine like that. The problem for colonized people is that they can't simply assume the same kind of national identity because they don't have the same exploitative infrastructure and they don't want the same exploitative infrastructure, uh, industrial infrastructure, but they want to have national sovereignty. So it's important to keep this in mind. And Fanon is really warning 
how we can think about decolonization so as not to replicate the exploitative tendencies of European colonization. Now, one of the ways in which Fenot's project really aligns with Marxist thought is how it must be a global effort and has to be a dialectical one. We'll talk about this more in the next episode, but for now, the idea that Fanon gives us is that you cannot necessarily force decolonization to happen. There has to be certain conditions met and a certain fire in the bellies of the people who are colonized en masse, like uh, massive amounts of people need to be prepared to engage in this engage in this movement in order for it to be successful. And if you just try to make it happen overnight, then it's going to run into so many issues. And the same really applies with capitalism, and Marx was very clear about this, that capitalism can't just be overthrown overnight. And it can't be overthrown by a single ruler just imposing dictatorial rule over people and ushering in communism. It must happen organically. And this will just happen dialectically because people within colonized countries will just will know <laughs> over time that the life that they are living makes no sense. It is unsustainable and they are alienated from themselves and so they will be forced to oppose colonial rule. Moreover, one of the basic tenets or pleas of Marxism is for workers of the world to unite. And we see that echoed in Fanon's idea about decolonization here, where it can't just happen in a single country. Like, sure, that'd be great for the people there, but they're going to be isolated because the rest of the countries that surround them might be organized uh, through colonial rule. And so they will have no way to form any strategic allyships, partnerships to have mutual benefit for each country that does not rely on exploitation. And so decolonization must be a global effort, even with and among the people of Europe. Really one of the important points here that Fanon stresses again and again and again is that this isn't about combating Europe. It's about working with Europe in order to correct Europe's violences, historical violences, to make Europe a better place in the world. And that puts us here into chapter two, titled Spontaneity, Its Strengths and Weaknesses. So now he makes an interesting distinction between working class people and everyone else in colonized settings. And this is also really going to reveal one of the limitations he sees with Marx's thought. Insofar as the workers are the most prepared or the most pampered <laughs> prepared, the workers are the most privileged people in colonized settings, whereas uh, people living in the country are largely peasants and slaves, whereas workers are living in the cities and the towns. So the issue here is that the script is actually reversed to some extent, where we see that working people are like top of the line as far as everyday people go in these settings, which doesn't mean that they're still not being exploited. It's important to keep that in mind. But in any case, it's important to consider how there are all these other dynamics at play, all of these other hierarchies at work here. And he goes so far to say that these workers who are like uh, conductors of trains, taxi drivers, miners, dockers, nurses, these are the bourgeois fraction 
of the colonized people. And what this does is opened up new conflict, not only between the colonized and the colonizer, but between workers in cities versus peasants in the country, which is an entirely different conflict. And all the while, the colonial power just laughs at both because they're, you know, they're fighting amongst themselves. Like, this is obviously very good for the colonizer. Now, Fanon is just drawing our attention to this possibility that is created out of colonial exploitation. And he's not saying, oh, the people in the town or the city are right, or the people in the country are right. He thinks that there are problems with both. Insofar as people in the country are going to be fighting for old traditional values and people in the city largely going to be submitting to colonial rule, he says that both are bad. Bad is a little bit of a harsh word because they're both victims in the setting, but both are incorrect insofar as neither of them are proposing a moving beyond colonialism, a move to the future to create a new man, a new human. So any nationalist parties that emerge that try to fight for colonized people and to elevate national consciousness should try to appeal to both the people in the country and the people in the cities and to work with existing structures and give them a nationalist or progressive character in his words. And I think the term progressive is really telling here in that it is about going forward, not going backward. And he will tell us again and again that decolonization is not just about looking to the past and trying to revive what was lost, but to look to the future as well. So you can have, you can try to revitalize lost culture, lost traditions, but it should also be accompanied by a desire to move into the future, to allow for newness, which colonialism largely inhibits. Colonialism wants to freeze people, wants to say, we have arrived and you must adopt these values that we believe have been given to us by God. And so we must therefore fight to make sure that you all think the same way. So colonialism is largely an enterprise of freezing. It tries to stop people from changing and from developing, which is really what people do, what cultures do. And so we must allow that, permit that to happen. Now, nationalist parties shouldn't forget, though, about people in the country. They shouldn't forget about tradition. And they should embrace the drive as well, though, for liberation, to move forward. Now, there are times in which people in the country don't feel themselves represented by people in the cities, where political parties in the cities that fight for national independence do not take as much consideration in, in traditional values as they could. And so people in the country feel alienated. And in response, they form their own parties to oppose the parties in the, in the cities, in the towns. And they look back to tradition, to traditional structures that have been, remember, they've been intensified by colonial rule, and they fall back into that, which Fanon is not too thrilled about. And meanwhile, the colonizer is very thrilled about it because it's just more conflict. And so long as there is this divide between the town and the country, a divide that we still very much see under very different conditions, of course, uh, today. People are very much ideologically different between country and city, which I think is just 
it's I, I'm interested in this because it seems to have always been the case, and I think it's an interesting phenomenon. But what might happen is that if there are these conflicts through the course of independence from colonial rule, what we'll see probably happen is that the population is still largely very unhappy, largely very unruly, and this national consciousness won't have really arrived because people don't see themselves attached to one another. They see themselves as still being separated. And this is really all ironic because the peasantry constitutes in... Fenot's words, they constitute the only spontaneously revolutionary force of the country. And so the city parties admonish the country efforts. And it makes sense that the historically most spontaneous revolutionary forces emerge from the country because they are still attached to some extent to their traditions, which they see being threatened by colonial rule and by capitalist structures imposed by Europe. Now, because these efforts, these efforts of spontaneity, maybe spontaneous resistance, adopting guerrilla warfare, are not appreciated by political parties in the towns and in the cities, these people might be further admonished, might be further criticized. And now he provides us a scenario in which there might be somebody within a political party in the city who sees that they are not radical enough. The political party is not radical enough, or they are too radical, and the political party pushes them out. And so they find comfort, they find solace in the country where people are welcoming there. People take the, this, this outcast in and they participate. They work with people in the country with all that they know about city political life and about the struggles going on there. And they are able to form a very effective political party themselves from the ground up with these bridging of knowledges from the country, from the city to the country. Now, Fanon suggests that this type of revolt is truly spontaneous insofar as it abides by one doctrine, and that, in his words, is to act in such a way that the nation may exist. There is no program, there are no speeches or resolutions, and no political trends. And because the country is just so vast and so spread out, what we see, and this is very much in keeping with the last passage I just read, he says that on every hill a government in miniature is formed and takes over power, and it is therefore radical and local. And this is its true spontaneous character. It cannot be sequestered. It cannot be controlled and contained just because what you have are these revolting systems that are all organized in accordance with the same ideological disposition towards national consciousness, which is a good thing for Fennel, they are all organized according to that mission, but they are doing it in their own local, uh, in accordance with their own local terrain, their own local structures. They know the territory of their village, of their town, and can use that knowledge to oppose colonial rule in a way that somebody from another part of the country might not be able to do. And this is the real spontaneous element of it. Now, of course, these tactical oppositions will be met with resistance. It's not like colonizers are going to say, oh, well, that was, we, we oh, you don't want us here, let's leave. Uh, and so, and we saw this type of thing happened in, uh, in Angola, the early 60s, where coloni colonizers responded with extreme force, killing many, many people. And colonizers are going to try to 
oppose guerrilla warfare with their own war of position to try to you know hold on to strategic bases but they find that that's quite difficult and so the colonizer is going to instead try to appeal to the minds of the colonized to say that you know europe is best the west is best you must therefore really understand that we are trying to help you which is a very effective strategy and many people will buy into it and it will cause people to give up their arms in favor of colonial rule but the opposition that is still experienced and that is still conducted by revolutionaries will still be met with violence but this violence will be much better than living under colonial rule where it's you know pretty famous adage you know it's better to die on your feet than to live on your knees type type of uh, saying and if this opposition occurs for long enough it's likely that the colonizer will try to make concessions with the colonized to try to make deals to which Fanon says that the colonized should try to resist making any kinds of deals because of course in the long run these deals are just going to work against the colonized people because a deal is going to obviously privilege privilege the more powerful side of the equation now what we also see is that sure some colonized people will align with the colonizer and they will think that the colonial way of life is better european values are better than what they have but what we'll also see and what we have seen is that colonizers see the horrors that they are inflicting and actually join the side of the colonized and it's important for revolutionaries also and this is a separate point to sniff out any anarchic or anarchistic elements within their ranks because they are going to oppose the nationalist struggle so they want to try to get rid of people who are just join revolutionary forces because they love violence for instance or because they want to burn down all structures to which Fanon is not very pleased with such such uh, approaches to this issue because he wants to try to create something new not to just bring everything down and yeah that'll wrap up chapter two next time we're going to look at start from chapter three titled the pitfalls of national consciousness and yeah if you like what i did like share subscribe i hope it was clear uh if there's anything i got wrong or anything i omitted that i should have included i'd love to hear about it and yeah catch you next time take care